Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42. What do you do when someone that you love tells you something and you question whether or not they're telling you the truth? What they are saying to you sounds good, but in the back of your mind you're not really sure if they're being truthful. There may have even been a history of lying in the past. You can't really outright accuse them of lying, not least without any solid proof, not usually a good idea. One thing that will destroy the trust in a relationship more quickly than lying is accusing someone of lying when they're telling the truth. If you don't love them very much, it won't be that difficult. You would be careful to just not make yourself vulnerable to them. You would protect your heart. You'd build walls around yourself. But if you really desire to have a strong relationship with them, you know that relationships are built on mutual trust. And every time you trust another person, you open yourself up to being hurt by them. Well, in our passage today... Joseph does not trust that his brothers will tell him the truth. You see, the last time that Joseph was with his brothers, they were full of jealousy and hatred towards him. They threw him into a pit, sold him into slavery. They did these things because they didn't really fear Joseph. They didn't have any reason to hide their true feelings towards Joseph at that time, but everything has changed. Now Joseph holds all the cards. Next to Pharaoh, he is the most powerful man in the world. And if Joseph makes himself known to his brothers, they will surely beg for mercy. They will tell Joseph exactly what he wants to hear. They would proclaim their sorrow for what they had done to him. They would profess to him that they were different now and had new hearts. But would they be telling the truth? Or would they only be saying these things because they knew that if they did not say these things, Joseph had the power to crush them? You see, Joseph wants to know the truth. He wants to know if his brothers have changed. He wants to know if they've become men of truth. And so Joseph is going to create scenarios in which he can observe his brother's actions without them really knowing that he is their brother. And he will watch not so much how they treat him, but how they treat one another. Genesis 42 begins with Jacob talking to his sons during the years of famine. Just so you can understand the timeline, 
Joseph had been sold into slavery when he was about 17 years old. Thirteen years later, he comes to to Pharaoh's second-in-command position. They've had seven years of plenty, and now they are in the seven years of famine. So we're really looking at Joseph being about 20 years. He's probably about 37 years old at this time. So let's begin. We'll look at the first five verses to begin with. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. You need to understand throughout this that God is the one driving the events of the story. God is the one bringing Joseph into reunion with his brothers. And he is using a famine to do it. In the first five verses, we can learn from Jacob about his attitude, his, his person. First, we learn that Jacob is completely unaware of God's working. I think Nathan's call to worship was so good. At the time, at the time that God is right there driving this whole scenario, Jacob has no sense that God is there with him. And that happens often to us. As far as Jacob is concerned, he is only trying to survive in life. That's what he's we got to get food from Egypt. they got food, let's go get it. We might want to believe that Jacob has perfect faith throughout this story. But that is not what we find. And this is important to us at the beginning of this whole lesson. It is not the perfection of Jacob's faith that accomplishes God's purposes. Did you hear that? So often we put so much pressure on ourselves as if to say, if we don't have perfect faith, then somehow we will miss God's plan for us. It is the perfection of God's steadfast love and faithfulness that will drive this whole story. Second, we also see that Jacob is still grieving the loss of Joseph. It's been 20 years. And we we see in Joseph a certain hardness to his character. Maybe even some depression. And he doesn't know that his other brothers are, are the ones responsible for it, but there's a certain harshness in the way that he treats the other brothers. And I think we see in this that Jacob's past sorrow drives his current fears. You see, Jacob's only concern at this point in his life is the safety of Benjamin. Do you remember earlier how quickly uh, Jacob sent Joseph to go find the brothers? 
Like, go, go ahead, Joseph, go find your brothers. And he travels and he never comes back. Now, Jacob is like, no, we can't do this. I can't lose Benjamin in the same way that I lost Joseph. And so I want to ask you today to just think about your own life. How have your past pains affected your present fears? I think it's wonderful reading this passage, knowing that God is putting this into the Word. If God understands Jacob as he is wrestling with his past pain and his current fears, do you think he understands you, your child, his child, as you go through struggle with fears in your life? God doesn't want you to live in fear. He wants you to live in faith, in his steadfast love, and his faithfulness towards you. That's what he wants. That's what he's working to build in you. But he is also understanding and compassionate when you don't have that perfect faith. And you do have fears that you're wrestling with. Verses 6 through 9. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold all, to all the people of the land. And J- Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said, they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. When the brothers arrive in Egypt, they immediately bow before Joseph. Joseph recognizes them, but they have no clue that they are bowing before their brother. You know, at this point, Joseph, with just one word, could have had them all killed. He might have, he might have like done it quickly, or he might have drawn it out, make their suffering long for the pain that they caused him. And if revenge was Joseph's intent, he had the means to carry it out at this point. By the way, if you're looking for a good story of revenge, I encourage you to read The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. It's not the story of Joseph. The reason why Joseph doesn't uh, take revenge is none other than the fact that God is working in his heart. Our natural bent when someone tries to kill us is to want to kill them in return and to feel justified in doing it. But that is not Joseph's intent. God is working reconciliation into his heart. It's ironic that the brothers who said that they would never bow to Joseph do so as soon as they come in the presence of Joseph as governor. Now, this is not the full fulfillment of those dreams because Benjamin's not present, Jacob's not present, those kind of things. But it is 
helps you to see that God's hand is at work fulfilling the dreams that he had given Joseph many years before. And Joseph is starting to remember those things as well. Joseph can be absolute Lord over his brothers at this moment. But that is not what he wants. Joseph wants to be reconciled with his brothers. And Joseph knows that if he were to reveal his true identity now, that his brothers would only tell him what he wants to hear. He would not be able to know if their hearts have been reconciled to him or if they would just be afraid of him crushing them. And so Joseph pretends to be a stranger. He speaks harshly to them. He accuses them of being spies. And as the story goes on, you're not entirely sure what Joseph's motivations are, but you see them as it unfolds. Joseph is testing his brothers. He wants to see if they have repented of selling him into slavery. He wants to see if they are still men full of jealousy and hatred. And so the dialogue continues in chapter 42, verse 10. And they said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We, we are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. Is it not interesting? They tell Joseph that they are honest men. Joseph knows that they have not been honest men. Whether or not they are right now is still to be seen, but he knows that in their past they have lied even to their own father. But in Joseph's questioning, and there was probably even more battering back and forth between them, they tell Joseph more about themselves than they probably intended at the beginning. They start talking about Benjamin and Joseph. Now, Joseph knows that they have told him the truth. I'm sure he's encouraged by this. But he, he still needs more evidence that they have really had a change of heart. Verse 14, Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested and here's the key phrase, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. I'm sure Joseph is making his plan up as he goes. He's trying to figure this out. He puts them in custody so he can think through this a little bit more. He tells them that he does not believe them. He is testing them, but he doesn't tell them what the true test is. They think he's testing whether or not they're spies. He is testing them to see if they are true men who will love their fellow brothers 
That's what he's testing. Has their heart attitude changed such that they now love Benjamin rather than hate him? Joseph uses a word called emet. He wants to see if there is truth in you. And this is a very important theological term. I've spoken about it many times, but I don't mind saying it again. It has two related meanings. One meaning is truth is, does it agree with the facts? Is it honesty? Is it true, I know I said this in Sunday school, is it true that the Denver Nuggets beat the Miami Heat for the national championship in basketball? Yes, that's a true statement. Is it true that I grew up in Paris, Ohio? Yes, that's a true statement. Is it true that I met my wife in Jackson Hole, Wyoming? Yes, that's a true statement. Is it true that I am a sinner? Yes, that is a true statement. But Emmet can have a second meaning And this is actually equally important to this passage. And that is the sense of faithfulness. What we mean by that is someone is true to his word. When they give their word, they follow through in their statements. When a person says he will do something, he is true when he falls through and does what he says he will do. And it's because this word emet can be used in both ways that it serves Joseph so well. The brothers only think that he's talking about, are we telling the truth right now that we're not spies? But Joseph wants to know, have you become men of truth? Are you faithful men? That's what he wants to know. You see, and this brings us more to gospel, more to salvation. You see, God wants a relationship with you. But the relationship that he has with you must be founded in truth. And he expects that this sort of faithfulness would be displayed between the brothers. That's what he expects. If there are two Hebrew words that permeate the entire Old Testament, that describe God's constant dealings with his people. One is emet, that he is faithful. He always is faithful to his word. The other is hesed, which is his steadfast love, his unchanging love towards his people. Those are the two qualities. And those have been uh, uh, put forth already in the book of Genesis. They are what we would call, this may sound strange, this is theological terms, these are two of God's communicable attributes. What that means is God is steadfast love, God is faithful, but it's these, these two qualities, these attributes, are not a part of his divinity, so much so that his people can't also possess them. And God is working to bring into his people what he already possesses. 
steadfast love and faithfulness. Joseph doesn't necessarily tell us about how the gospel is God producing in his people steadfast love and faithfulness, but he knows that if he is going to experience a relationship with his brothers that is going to have any amount of meaning, if their hearts have not been changed, it's going to be impossible. They have to be true, and so he tests them. Genesis 42, 18 On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words may be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. As the brothers are in custody, Joseph has more time... I'm sorry, I thought I was still reading the text. As Joseph has these guys in custody, he refines his plan. He realizes that in order to send enough food back home, he's going to need to send most of the brothers back. And he also knows that if they leave one brother behind, it will create a scenario very similar to leaving Joseph in the pit. And he wants them to wrestle through, kind of make these connections uh, between their past sin and their present situation. He's, he's thinking, if they don't really care about their brothers, they will let this one brother rot in prison just like they let me be sold into slavery. So he's trying to see, what will they do? Verse 21, Then they said to one another, In, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother." And that we saw distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress is coming upon us. The brothers, by Joseph's his plan, they are being reminded of the guilt of their actions with Joseph. They are, for the first time in 20 years, dealing honestly with their sin. They have ignored their sin. They have suppressed it over many years. But at this time, it begins to bubble up. And is that not the way God often works? They are making the connections between their current trial. They know that when they go back and tell dad that they left another brother in Egypt, he is not going to be happy. They know all these things are going to happen. And they're just like, oh my goodness. Oh, It's like deja vu. It's coming right back. Everything we did to Joseph, we're going to have to do again. They are making the connection that previous guilt demands punishment. Have you ever felt the guilt of your sins? Have you just kind of pushed them down and tried to forget about them? God doesn't want that to happen. He wants you to deal honestly with your sins. Not so he can crush you. Not so he can point fingers and make life miserable for you. But because he knows that if you're going to enter into a relationship with him, it's going to be based upon truth. Honesty 
is the only way you can have a relationship with God. Don't hide your sin from him. Come clean. Admit your sin to him. Verses 22 to 24. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. See that that sense of this, this, we deserve God's wrath. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Why does Joseph start weeping? He is trying to put on a show of being harsh because that's a part of the plan. That's a part of the scheme. He doesn't want them to recognize who he is. But in his heart of hearts, he's like, oh my goodness, Reuben actually tried to save me? He, he actually tried to keep me from the pit? I didn't know that. And he turns around and starts weeping because he loves his brothers. He's not harboring bitterness towards them. When he sees them struggling with the guilt of their actions, his heart opens up to them. That's the way God is with us. If you want to remain hardened in your sin, you're going to experience his wrath. But if you will open up and feel the weight of the guilt of your sin and come before him, he welcomes you with open arms. Verse 25 through 28, And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? You got a lot of questions going on here. Why does Joseph put this money in their sacks? He could just be being generous to them. Um, But I think he knows that it will evoke even more guilt. Because they, they now can be accused in Egypt as stealing this uh, provisions. And this would make them all the more want to never come back to Egypt. You see what he's doing? He's actually creating a scenario where it is more beneficial for them to leave Simeon behind and never return to Egypt. He wants to see, will they put their own lives at risk to come back and get Simeon? Or will they act selfishly? He's watching them. I also think it's interesting in this this little section that that, um, I believe the brothers are truly trying to do what's right. And I've heard this many times as a pastor. You might be able to to, uh, empathize with it. As soon as you start trying to live life right, as soon as you start trying to do the right thing, don't you just expect God to make it a little bit easier for you? And often it seems like it gets harder. And that's what's happening with these guys. They're like, we're finally trying to not be these terrible people we were in our past, and it just seems like God is against us. Well, God is not against these brothers. He is for them. He loves them. 
29 through 36. When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you and shall trade. you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they saw... When they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Now we go through this same story twice because I think the writer wants us to feel the weight of how difficult it was for them to be honest with their dad. Remember last time they had created a story, now they're telling him the truth. Jacob responds with despair. And again, we surely can fault Jacob's faith. We might encourage him to remember the promises given to him. But as a reader, I want you to empathize with Jacob. How would you feel if two of your sons were taken from you and potentially a third? On the one hand, you have all the promises of Scripture telling you that God loves you. And on the other hand, you have your life experience. Joseph, I mean, Jacob at this point chooses to believe his life experience. He says, everything is against me. Jacob is caught up in self-pity. He has feelings of despair. Jacob seems at this point to almost lose his faith entirely. It's certainly, I believe, the low point in his life. But it is through this low point that God is strengthening and deepening his faith like never before. Remember that in your low points of your life. 37 and 38. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my sons, my two sons, if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Many commentators do not like Reuben's response because he offers his sons. I love Reuben's response. I think that Reuben um, sees his dad, recognizes that two of his sons have been ripped from him. He doesn't really believe that his dad will kill his sons. But I think he says to his dad, I understand your pain. I will do everything in my power to go get them back. You have my word. And I don't think Jacob is necessarily doubting Reuben's truthfulness. I think he just doesn't think Reuben can do it. (laughs) 
I think he just thinks that's crazy. I'm going to lose everyone. But as we get close to the end of this, there's one more thing that you need to see in this test because it's more than even Joseph had intended. It's actually something that I think God feeds into the test. Do you notice how Jacob's words devalue the other brothers? The only son that really matters to him is Benjamin. You see, it's that kind of attitude that led the brothers to want to kill Joseph. And so God, in this orchestration, he, in his mastery, allows Jacob, in his depression, to basically say the same thing about Benjamin that he felt about Joseph earlier on. So it creates the same scenario. And the question is, will these brothers act out of jealousy and hatred as they did before? Or will they be true men? Well, the story's not going to end today. We're going to finish that, this portion of it next week. But, but I believe the brothers are doing well. There is a change working in the hearts of these brothers. So here's, I got three applications for you. Has God brought you to the place of being honest about your past sins? Most of us carry the weight of guilt of our past sins throughout our lives. I have the the privilege as a pastor of talking to a lot of people close to death. And it is just about right every time to just assume that they're still bearing some guilt. Be honest with God. Confess your sins openly before him in a way that you could confess them to no other person. Secondly, are you striving to become a man or woman of truth? You will do it imperfectly in this life. But you and I should be hungering and thirsting to be men and women of steadfast love and faithfulness. That is the goal of life. That's what life's about. My greatest regrets as a Christian are the moments and seasons where I have not acted in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so I have to confess those to God. Lastly, do you believe that your God is working to make you a man or woman of steadfast love and faithfulness? The world tells you you got to pick up yourself by your own bootstraps. The world tells you to not rely to rely on yourself. The world tells you that God cannot be trusted. If he exists at all, he will fail you. But when God is bringing you through the hardships of your life, remember Jacob. Remember that when he thought God had abandoned him the most was at the point that God was doing the most work in his life. Joseph couldn't see the bigger picture, but we're looking at it in Scripture. 
Our challenge is to say that the same God that worked in Jacob's life is also working in our life, and he is able to do it. Finish all of your thoughts with Jesus. You will have doubts, you will have fears, you will have feelings of guilt and despair, and they will swirl around your head every day. Finish your thoughts with Jesus. Jesus died to remove all of your guilt. He rose again to crucify all of the evil within you and to raise you to new life. It is in Jesus Christ that you have been given grace upon grace. God is larger than your weak faith. He is larger than your sinful heart. And in his steadfast love and faithfulness, he is making you into a true companion eternally with himself. That's the good news. Amen.